everyone. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 128 on the Netherlands. The capitalist country is Amsterdam, and the name Netherlands literally means lowlands. This is due to the country's low elevation above sea level, making it one of the low countries of Europe, and also one of the lowest countries in the world. Rotterdam is the busiest port in Europe, and as a port, 516 million tons passed through this port in 2022, which is about the average that passed through it every year. Of course, it's increased a little because year after year, the country is getting bigger, more trade, stuff like that, but that is a ridiculous amount. And now we're going to get into some cool facts. Guythorn is a town in the Netherlands that is suburban in structure, much like you would see anywhere with grassy front yards, very nuclear family homes, stuff like that, but there are no roads to it. It's all water that you traverse by rafts and boats and things of that sort and there's no roads it just eventually leads out to the rest of the country where there are roads and hills and all that it's interesting and another thing is that the netherlands produces up to 80 percent of the world's tulips and we're getting to why tulips are a big thing in this country's history both present tense and past tense when we do other parts of this episode and out of any country in the world that is non-english speaking the most proficient in english is the netherlands they are also, on average, the tallest people on Earth, with men averaging 6'1 and women 5'7. And the Netherlands is also the most densely populated country in the continent of Europe. So, truly, these are some serious episodes we're doing right now. Big European countries, by populations, one that have a lot of history. And the Netherlands is definitely one of them. I'm not going to dilly-dally too much, because anybody who knows anything about the Dutch and the Netherlands knows that there's a lot to unfold. But, just so you guys know, I'm going to get into pretty much everything I can with this country. So basic history like we always do, but I'm also going to do separate little parts within this episode on the countries, I'm saying in quotes, that belong to the Netherlands that aren't independent because every independent country we either already have gathered information on and done an episode on like Suriname, or we will do an episode on like Indonesia. So keep that in mind as we go through this and just know that I'm not like messing up episode orders. It's just different little countries and islands that are within the kingdom of the Netherlands. And with that being said, I'm done chatting it up, talking out my butt, and we're going to keep this going. So I'm very excited to do this history. It's a very long one with a lot of deep layers and effects on the region. So we're just going to unfold as much of it as we can. And I'm very glad you guys are here. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. So one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this is the Netherlands. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin definitively around 10,000 BC. The reason we say that is because life could have been here a little before or way before, but we know for sure that people were gathering here after the end of the last glacial period, which was around then. Passe Canoe is the oldest watercraft that has ever been found. It dates back thousands and thousands of years to around this period and is seen as the first watercraft ever used in the world. And the people of the Netherlands before it became the country we know it as today, formed into the funnel beaker culture that spread across Western Europe. Stone structures, known as dolmens, have been left behind since this time. The next major people group are the Celts. They started to live in the land circa 800 BC. The Celts in the Netherlands were part of the broader Latene culture, characterized by distinctive metalwork, art, and pottery. The Latene culture is often associated with being very culturally significant throughout the next hundred years, 
because of course the Celts are very present, but this was a culture that was strong, so it resisted a lot of the changes that came. Specifically, they left iron and gold crafts in the southern part of the Netherlands for others to discover. And one of those people groups that started to affect the land and the Celts was the Germans, and Germanic migration happened mostly from eastern regions in Central Europe. They called their land Dutchland. The western part of the country was called Dutch by the British, and eventually it stuck. The people of the Netherlands are still known to this day as Dutch. The next major influence was the Roman Empire. They marched into the land at the turn of the eras and defeated the Germanic people groups in the Gallic Wars, which were led by Julius Caesar. The Batavi were a war culture of the northern Dutch tribes and resisted against the Romans and specifically against Caesar from 69 to 79 CE. The Romans eventually suppressed this and established tight control over the land. Roman rule brought a lot of technological advancements, but also brought cultural suppression to the Germanic tribes. Roman rule lasted until the 400s when the Western Empire fell. The Frisians, Franks, and Saxons then rose up. They all controlled different parts of the Dutch lands upon the fall of Rome. Charlemagne, who was a Germanic Frank, ended all fighting in the region when he incorporated the entire lowlands into the Carolingian Empire. The lowlands region was added to East Francia in 870. This empire encouraged the spread of Christianity to the Germanic pagans. Low countries became part of the Middle Kingdom of Lotharingia, a territory that extended from present-day Belgium to the Rhineland in Germany. Germanic French was spoken here and ended up blending with the Celtic language and the other language groups that were here to form into early Dutch, which means language of the lowland countries. After Charlemagne conquered the lowlands into East Francia, he formed the Holy Roman Empire. And just as this was starting to culminate, another thing was happening in the 800s, and that was Viking raids. Viking raids hit the Dutch coasts in the 800s. Some of the lowlands were occupied by Viking raiders, and trade docks were established. The presence of Vikings helped pagan religious belief hold out against Christian conversion for longer than expected. Dorestad was an important trading center in what is now the Netherlands. It was one of the wealthiest ports in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, and it became a major target for Viking attacks. Vikings repeatedly invaded this area and actually occupied it during the late 800s. Conflicts between the Franks and Vikings were common due to the raid culture. Eventually, alliances were struck between the Franks and Vikings to allow some Viking settlements in the lowlands. Trade flourished, and this led to the end of the Viking era because raid culture started to die and Christianity spread throughout Viking civilizations. And bouncing back to the Holy Roman Empire, the lowlands region under this rule became colloquially known as the Netherlands, literally meaning low and lands, because low is nether and lands means lands. From here, various territories in the low countries evolved into independent duchies and counties. The Duchy of Brabant, in particular, became a prominent and influential state within the Holy Roman Empire. Other notable regions included the County of Flanders and the Bishopric of Utrecht. Feudalism was used religiously across the empire and was a mainstay of the economy in the lowlands. The access to cheap labor allowed the low-lying state of the Netherlands to become an early trade hub for agricultural goods and animal products. In the 900s, trade towns were established across the northern coast and expanded the Dutch network into the North Sea. By the 1000s, the people living in the Netherlands were sick of the flooding problem that had plagued them since its establishment back by the Romans. The Dutch began to construct river dikes to divert the water from the ocean into a more navigable river. Dikes were built all across the country and are still a mainstay of Dutch society today because they allow for some level of a dam to be created so that water is heavily reduced and then people can build around the water that remains. Within a few decades of dikes creation, much more fertile land was available for use, 
windmills were also built to harness power, and the Netherlands starts to shape into the country that it's culturally seen as today. And this is also when clogs start to be used. Clogs are those little wooden shoes that everyone associates with the Netherlands. And today they aren't really used, but in the past they were used by farmers and fishermen, just anyone who was living the more working class life in the Netherlands. Because the country is such a wet and low country that any working jobs revolved around water in some way. So people wore these wooden shoes to protect from diseases in the water, getting cut underwater, getting bitten, all sorts of things like that because nothing was biting through these weird little wooden shoes. But today they're sold mostly as souvenirs just to kind of represent, oh, I went to the Netherlands, I know Dutch culture, yada, 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 tourist stuff. But it's cool because it is a very accurate part of Dutch history. Before the 1200s, dynastic struggles defined the Netherlands. They played huge counter to the growth of the region that was happening since dikes were built. Trade expanded to cities like Amsterdam, which made the economy grow. By the end of the 1200s, though, most Dutch cities had been incorporated into the Hanseatic League, which was an alliance of Germanic trade states meant to counter Viking raids beforehand, but stayed in place to spread Christianity against pagans. Frisians were most prominent in the northern region called Frisia. This region remained valiantly independent and free throughout the first centuries of the millennium. Holland, which is heavily used to refer to the Netherlands in different pop culture, actually refers only to two regions in the western part of the Netherlands, not the whole country. The regions are North and South Holland, and in North Holland, there was a fishing village once created with the name Amsterdam. Of course, today, Amsterdam is one of the most significant cities in Europe, but not a lot was happening for a long time until eventual trade came in, which we'll talk about later. Amsterdam was just a little fishing village, and Rotterdam and other cities were much more important. But the reason that but the reason that the Netherlands is so commonly name swapped with Holland is because of the fact that people in Amsterdam are referred to as Hollanders and many people misconceive that as the greater country. And this isn't thing and this isn't something that's like offensive or anything. Nobody in the Netherlands is gonna get mad at you for calling it Holland. Like maybe they'll roll your eyes or just think it's funny, but it's not like it's a derogatory term. So it's not something to watch your feet about or, you know, feel like you're walking on eggshells. But it's just more correctly, there's people who are Hollanders because they're from these two regions. The rest of the country is just Dutch or from whatever region they're from. Province, I should say. And while we're speaking of Holland, some of the most famous Dutch creations came from the Holland region, such as Gouda cheese, which apparently is pronounced Hulda cheese because it's Dutch. I didn't know that. Clogs were also invented in Holland, and large windmills were made famous here because even though they were created earlier, they were most heavily expanded across Holland and built to their biggest, most effective size in the Holland regions of the Netherlands. And the Hollanders from this region clashed heavily with the Frisians over land control and law. This occurred throughout the 1200s when trade expanded and Netherlands was growing in wealth. The 1300s were much less joyous. Civil wars gripped the nation, namely the Hook and Cod Wars, which were fought from 350 to 1490. The plague also destroyed the nation and ravaged the population in the 1300s. The Cod Wars were wars between different provinces in the Netherlands over both religion and trade, and they were backed by foreign powers that ultimately didn't end up in any major historical context because it was just fighting that people seemed to be doing for a greater cause, but no one was able to conquer or get full hegemony over anything, but it did keep tensions very high within the country. And the next thing we're getting to is the House of Burgundy. The Burgundian dynasty, originally from Burgundy in France, began to exert its influence in the Low Countries in the late 14th century. Philip the Bold, a member of the Burgundian dynasty, inherited several territories in the Low Countries through his marriage and the dynastic connections that 
came with it. Under his rule, the Low Countries began to experience a degree of political unity. Philip the Good, who ruled the Burgundian territories from 1419 to 1467, expanded the domain further. He was known for his centralizing policies, administrative reforms, and patronage of the arts. His reign was marked by relative stability and a lot of economic prosperity for the Dutch. The term 17 provinces refers to the group of territories in the Netherlands under Burgundian rule, which were collectively known as the Burgundian Circle. The Burgundian dynasty came to an end with the death of Charles the Bold in 1477. Mary of Burgundy, his daughter, married Maximilian of Habsburg, who later became the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. The Habsburgs inherited the Burgundian territories and ended up uniting the Low Countries with the Habsburg domains all into one empire. This is known as the House of Habsburg Rule because they took control of the land in 1482 and began influencing it heavily. The Habsburgs revoked Netherlands' membership in the Hanseatic League and they took control of Dutch trade ports for themselves. One of the most prominent Habsburg rulers of the Netherlands was Charles V, who was born in Ghent in 1500 and became the Holy Roman Empire and became the Holy Roman Emperor in 1519. He was known for his centralized administration, but his reign was also marked by religious conflicts. The spread of Protestantism and its suppression by the Catholic authorities created tensions in the Netherlands. The era of 17 provinces continued under Habsburg rule. Erasmus of Rotterdam challenged the belief of the church in his statement that a relationship with God mattered more than any ceremony. This challenged the Catholic system, so it made him an enemy of the state. Erasmus wasn't an ally of Martin Luther because he didn't believe in the unrest that Martin Luther's movement caused. This led to a clash between the two, and they started to duke it out in ways of, you know, very intellectual level. It's not like they were fighting a war with each other, but they were putting out speeches and what we would call, like, arguments and papers against each other to challenge each other's thoughts and spread their beliefs to more people. But nonetheless, Protestantism took root in the Netherlands. King Philip II of Spain, who was in control of the Netherlands at the time due to a Habsburg marriage to the Spanish family, he made Protestantism legal. The law caused the execution of many and led to a fiery resistance by the Protestants. The Duke of Alba led a Spanish military force into the Netherlands to crush any Protestant resistance. The Duke and his men killed thousands of people. This was one of the early onsets to the Eighty Years' War. William the Silent was a nobleman from the House Nassau, or House Orange, that connected deeply with the Protestantism and the changes that came to the country. William eventually converted from Catholicism to Protestantism. He was of the House of Orange, which existed since the Roman times, where it was a vassal state. The title Orange was used to label the Principality of Orange in France under the Romans, and was always a very royal house due to the wealth it had and due to the way it negotiated with the Romans. And negotiating well with the Romans means that you're on a good historical track. So they just kept wealth building and all of those things throughout history. So eventually, William the Silent of this house emerged as the main leader of the resistance against Spain. His actions were extremely influential, so much so that he was an unofficial military leader, was the vocal representation of Dutch beliefs, all these things going into the Eighty Years' War. And he is so significant that by the end of the Eighty Years' War, the national anthem of the Netherlands is entirely dedicated and written about him. The song is meant to depict the things that William fought against and saw in times of war. And he is known by the moniker, the father of the fatherland, referring to his creation of free Netherlands. But you have to ask, how did we get there? And that's with the actual Eighty Years' War. It was fought from 1568 to 1648. It was mainly between the Dutch Republic and Spain. The Dutch were backed by France and England, and Spain was backed by the Holy Roman Empire. 
The war is also known as the Dutch Revolt or Dutch War for Independence. Conflict between the North and South Netherlands started with the Treaty of Utrecht that ended the division across the North and made them all into a united northern province, which is pretty much the baseline for the borders of the modern Netherlands. And the opponent they faced was the Union of Arras. The Union of Arras was backed by Spanish soldiers who bolstered the South Dutch forces with a lot of troops. In 1581, the Spanish pushed the North Dutch province back and the land was split in two. In this same year, the United Provinces of the North declared independence via the Act of Abjuration. The rest of the war was fought to defend independence and the borders it had established. And disregard what I said earlier, it's actually these borders. So when the Treaty of Utrecht is signed, that's kind of a union between all of the lowland region, which is Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands, as opposed to after 1581, they get pushed back, and that's when the Act of Abjuration is signed, and that's the modern borders, roughly, of the Netherlands. Another significant figure was Keanu Simons Dutcher Hasselaer. He was a Dutch military leader that created a small band of women to resist against Spain. She was a mother of four. Keanu, Keanu Simons Dutcher Hasselaer was a Dutch military leader that created a small band of women to resist against the Spanish fighters. She was a mother of four when she became famous for leading charges against the Spanish soldiers in the Siege of Harlem. By the 1600s, the North Dutch provinces had declared themselves a confederation that didn't have a king. Instead, this confederation used members of the Royal House of Orange to act as placeholders for kings while the war was going on. The North had also accepted many immigrants from France and southern lowlands, which made the country stoutly Protestant. Despite issues of the war, the Dutch wanted to challenge European power in the world stage. So in 1604, the United East India Company was established. It was created for the Dutch to explore and conquer the Indian Ocean and other territories of the world. Despite this company existing, we're going to get into that in a sec. Now we get to talk about the end of the war because we're getting into the second half of it, which is when things start to wrap up. I will get into what happened from 1618 until 1648 much more when I do an episode on Spain. However, to make it short, the Eighty Years' War was going on between the Dutch and the Spanish. But at the same time, another conflict broke out from 1618 to 1648 that is now known as the Thirty Years' War. This war saw a lot of different powers fight against each other and a lot fight against Spain. But by the end of it, the war and the Eighty Years' War ended with the defeat of Spain, and in return, Spain could no longer fight the Dutch in the Northern Front. Therefore, in 1648, Spain recognized the independence of the Northern Netherlands, which represent the modern borders of the country today. But the Spanish kept hold of the Southern Netherlands, which eventually became Belgium and Luxembourg. And around this same time, something crazy also happened. It was called Tulip Mania. The tulip was introduced to the Netherlands in the 1500s, and it became a label of status for its beauty. As the tulip's popularity grew, so did its price. People began to buy and sell tulip bulbs as a form of investment. The rarest and most sought-after tulips were those with unique colors and patterns, caused by a virus known as tulip breaking. The tulips were called broken tulips because of the virus that hit them. A futures market for tulips was developed, allowing traders to buy contracts for the delivery of tulip bulbs at future dates. This allowed speculators to bet on future price of bulbs without actually owning any of them. This was very similar to a stock market because you could buy it now for 16 bucks, and in a few months it could be worth 48 and you could sell it to the people who were already going to buy it just at that price. Prices of tulip bulbs began to rise exponentially and it created a speculative frenzy. Bulbs that were initially worth a modest sum could sell for astronomical prices. The peak of the tulip mania is often associated with the winter from 1636 to the first few months of 1637. 
prices became completely detached from the intrinsic value of tulip bulbs. At the height of the bubble, a single tulip bulb could reportedly sell for the price of a luxurious house in Amsterdam. Eventually, the bubble burst in early 1637 and prices of tulip bulbs plummeted. Panic set in and people started to rapidly sell away what they had. It caused the market to crash and the country's economy suffered for a few years through the end of the decade. And now that we're out of the chaos of the war and the tulips, we could talk more about the United East India Company. It made Netherlands very rich. By connecting the Netherlands with different areas of the world through trade, the company was able to monopolize trade because of the merchant fleet of the Dutch. It was split into two parts, the Dutch West India Company and the Dutch East India Company. Holland and EU was used to describe the golden age of the Netherlands, which lasted for the rest of the 1600s and even a few years after. The Dutch were able to use traded goods and relations that came from them to create the largest merchant fleet in the world. This merchant fleet would sail across the world and establish Dutch influence from the Far East islands of Indonesia to the Far West islands of the Caribbean. The Dutch had now established a global empire. They used this far-reaching influence to harvest resources across the world using slave labor. They sold enslaved people in the Atlantic, and they also didn't develop some of the colonies they created. All of this brought great wealth to the nation, and this wealth was used to establish new systems that kept the country strong. The banking system was modernized. The government funded arts and science research to delve deep into the culture of the Dutch. Citizens of the Netherlands, especially those in cities like Amsterdam, got a share of the United East India Company. This contributed largely to an increase in wealth across the social classes. Internationally, the Dutch dominated trade for this entire period. And now we are going to talk about all the little countries, specifically six of them, that are still a part of Dutch possession in some way, shape, or form, which I'll explain, and are not independent. Because, as I said before, any countries that were touched by the Dutch before will get acknowledged in some way, shape, or form when I do that individual independent country. But for these, they are not currently in a status of that point, so they can't be called independent. So our first is Saba. Saba was originally inhabited by the Arawaks and Carib indigenous people. The first European sighting of the island is attributed to Christopher Columbus's voyage in 1493. The Dutch were the first European settlers on Saba in the 17th century. The island was also briefly occupied by French and English privateers and eventually the true kingdoms, throughout this 100 years that shifted from the late 1600s to the 1700s. Saba was primarily an agricultural economy during the colonial period. The island's inhabitants cultivated sugar, indigo, cotton, and other crops, as well as engaged in fishing. It was also known for its shipbuilding and boat building industry, a thing that it maintained all the way through the modern age where ships are still built in Saba today. Saba has a history of piracy and privateering. Many Saban men became privateers authorized by European colonial powers to attack and seize enemy vessels during times of war. So even though there was times when Saba was Dutch, these Dutch subjects could be bribed by the British or French to establish a pirate fleet and interrupt trade that was going to the Netherlands. One of the big developments was the abolition of slavery in Saba, which happened after the whole privateer period, right around 1863. Many former slaves chose to remain on the island as free laborers. This event, known as Emancipation Day, is still celebrated as a national holiday in Saba. Today, Saba is part of the Caribbean Netherlands and has a small population. The island is known for its natural beauty, especially its volcanic terrain. It also has rainforests and a lot of diving sites. Saba's economy is driven by tourism and offers visitors a tranquil and ecological diverse destination for them to visit without paying the prices you'd pay at some of the more famous spots. Our next one is St. Eustatius. Synestasius was originally inhabited by Caribs that were driven out by the Taino Arawaks that came from Venezuela. Christopher Columbus sighted this island during his second voyage in 1493. 
The first European settlers on Synestatius were the Dutch. They established a fort on the island in the late 1600s. The island was also briefly occupied by the French and English during this period. Synestatius was a significant hub for trade during the 1700s. Its strategic location in the Caribbean and its free trade policies led to it becoming known as the Golden Rock. It was a major center for smuggling goods and became a key player in the American Revolution because people from both sides were able to send goods away to it or actually take refuge there from the war. Many times it was British loyalists or actual British Richmond that were able to afford a ship out of here to avoid crossing into Florida or any of the other areas that revolutionary fighting was happening across. Synestatius is most famously known for being the first foreign entity to officially salute the flag of the United States on November 16, 1776. This symbolic recognition of American independence helped to foster good relations between the U.S. and the Dutch at a very early period. The island was officially returned to Dutch control in the late 1700s. It was then a Dutch colony until the dissolution of the Netherlands Antilles all the way in 2010. Today, Synestasius is part of the Caribbean Netherlands along with Bonaire and Saba. It has a small population, is known for its natural beauty, and its diving sites. The island is a popular destination for tourists looking to explore its marine life, reefs, and volcanic terrain. And Bonaire is the last of the three islands that make up the Caribbean Netherlands. In Bonaire, the first inhabitants moved into the island around 1000 CE. They were the Caiquetos, which were a specific people under the Arawak umbrella. They sailed to Bonaire from Venezuela. The first Europeans to arrive were Amerigo Vespucci and Alonso de Ojeda. They claimed the island for Spain in 1499. The island was not rich in natural resources, so the Spanish used it as a place to kidnap indigenous people into slavery. This left the island uninhabited. In 1526, Caijuetos were brought back to the island as a labor force. Cattle were then reintroduced to the island and were harvested for meat. The Caiquetos were the ones forced to do that work. And the reason they were reintroduced was because, in the early days, any cattle that were here were either brought by the Caiquetos originally and were not raised correctly so they were killed, and wild cattle were either killed outright just to be eaten for survival, or they died in agricultural practice. From here, the village of Rincon was the only one that was continuously inhabited throughout this period. It was an inland settlement that was filled with cattle farmers. In 1633, the Dutch gained control of Bonaire. They used Bonaire as a plantation island. This was when the people were imported from Africa as slaves. Bonaire changed hands many times, but became Dutch permanently in 1816 after Napoleon was defeated and the Congress of Vienna was held. Bonaire was rich in salt, so this helped the country become very wealthy in the mid-1800s when the salt market boomed. This allowed the Bonaireans to construct ship harbors and hotels for people to stay at. In the early 1900s, a boom in tourism occurred because of the fact that the country was already built to handle tourists. In 1943, the first airport was introduced. This also increased tourism and made the country richer than it had been before. In 1954, the island was joined into the Netherlands Antilles and maintained autonomous status through the Island Council with other Dutch islands. In 2006, Bonarians voted to dissolve the Netherlands Antilles alongside Saba and Synestatius. Those islands were used and abused in the same way Bonaire was. Since then, Bonaire, Saba, and Synestatius has been chosen to remain alongside the Dutch for, for the foreseeable future. Now, the next three islands we are going to do are more autonomous than the first three, so I'll be giving them greater context. These three territories are part of the Netherlands. They are Aruba, Curaçao, and Saint Martin. They are more seen as countries within the Kingdom of the Netherlands rather than just possessions or the Caribbean Netherlands, something like that. So to go way back, Aruba was first settled by Arawak Taino people that also came from the Orinoco River Valley in Venezuela. The Taino were hunter-gatherers at first, and then they established an agricultural system called Konoko, which means shifting 
and the system worked around the four seasons to grow different crops in different spots in order to help keep soil fertile and would therefore represent shifting. The people lived in a chiefdom society with one real chief at the top of each village or region. The Taino were famous for their craftsmanship, which they used to create baskets, pottery, and jewelry, all things that have still been found by archaeologists or are still used today by the indigenous population on the island. The Spanish claimed the island as a colony in 1499. The Spanish killed the Taino with both war and disease, and the Taino that remained were forced into the workforce for harvesting crops. In 1636, the Dutch West India Company took over from the Spanish. The Dutch imported enslaved people from West Africa to work on plantations and harvest aloe and maize as cash crop. The Dutch also brought their legal, education, and medical systems to the island. During the Napoleonic Wars, the island was occupied by the British after the Netherlands were invaded. Once Napoleon was defeated, the Congress of Vienna returned Aruba to the Netherlands. Aruba had a weak economy that was based solely on agriculture exports all the way until the 1920s. It was in this decade that oil was discovered in the southern part of the island. Refineries were built and Aruba flourished. The economy boomed and the quality of life followed suit. Increased immigration resulted from the oil boom. The Dutch funded construction programs that built schools, hospitals, and more. Beautification projects built sculptures, museums, and more across the island. In 1986, Aruban people coordinated with the People's Electoral Movement Party to gain autonomous status for the Dutch. Aruba was then able to fully govern itself as part of the Dutch Kingdom. In 1994, Aruba officially decided that it would postpone independence indefinitely and remain as part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. In 2010, Aruba became a separate country within the Kingdom of the Netherlands, which means it has its own government systems, head of state, and more, but still ultimately hails to the final decision of the Netherlands when it has international views, military actions, things of that sort, and there's always money that is transferred between the two nations. Aruba currently has a very high level of development based on the Human Development Index. Access to property ownership is very high for the upper class who enjoy the beautiful beaches and gorgeous Dutch-style homes. The working class is mostly in construction. They also work in agriculture and fishing, but in all these areas, workers' rights are protected and jobs are profitable. Aruba is one of the best places to live across the entire Caribbean because it does have a smaller size, both geographically and population-wise, which means that there isn't as much of a huge disparity in wealth as you see in some of the other countries, which is making Aruba very great as we speak. My mother's visited there a million times because she's a flight attendant out of Florida that gets a lot of trips to the Caribbean, and Aruba's one of her favorite spots, so this was a fun one for me to learn about. Our next one is Curacao. It was first inhabited by the Arawaks that had a similar history to the ones in Aruba and Bonaire. In 1499, the Spanish arrived, claimed the land, and used the people as slaves in Hispaniola. However, the land wasn't fully uninhabited. The people that remained were Sephardic Jews that established the first Jewish exclave in the Western Hemisphere. They migrated from Portugal throughout the 1500s to escape religious persecution there. The Dutch gained full control of the land in 1634. People were imported as slaves, and the 1600s and 1700s were defined by forced labor used to harvest salt. The late 1700s saw Curaçao act more as a battlefield for British and Dutch privateers than it did anything else. 1816 marked a turning point for Curaçao. It would be from this year forward that Curaçao would remain Dutch. In 1845, Curaçao was joined with the Dutch island. In 1845, Curaçao was joined with the Dutch islands to form the Netherlands Antilles. In 1945, the island gained autonomous status within the Netherlands Antilles. Then, in 2006, the Netherlands Antilles were dissolved. The year 2010 saw Curaçao join Aruba as a country within the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Since then, Curaçao has operated very similarly to Aruba, 
in both its need for tourism, its economy based on things of that sort. Very, very similar, but it still has its own history, which is why we acknowledge it. And the final one is my favorite because of a unique historical moment, and that's Sint Martin. We're going to get into why it's my favorite very soon. The Arawak and Caribbean peoples inhabited the island before its sighting by Christopher Columbus in 1493, and eventually it was taken over by first the Spanish, then the French. The French and Dutch remained, battled it out over and over, and eventually partitioned the land in 1648. Now, this is the reason this is my favorite one. The way the island was split is truly hilarious. A Dutch runner and a French runner were set to race to the center of the island. Wherever the men met or collapsed, depending on what source you go from, would be the established border between the French and the Dutchlands. The Frenchmen had to race across the coastline from the south to the north, and the Dutchmen had to move south from the top of the island. But that isn't all. The runners both had to ingest significant amounts of alcohol from their culture to impair the way they ran. The controversy with this is that the French runner drank French wine as his beverage, and the Dutchman drank Dutch gin. The gin was significantly stronger than the wine, and this is the reason cited by the Dutch for the weak performance of the Dutch runner. The French runner was able to run across two-thirds of the island, thus claiming it for the French. Today, around 65% of the island is Saint Martin of France, compared to the Dutch portion, which is Saint Martin. The Dutch portion of the island became a part of the Dutch West Indies in 1828, and in 1845, it was one of the six Dutch island territories in the West Indies. In 1954, it joined the Netherlands Antilles, becoming an integral part of the Netherlands politically because it, it now had autonomy in its own internal affairs, but still overall hailed to the Dutch. In 1989, the political leadership of St. Martin announced its desire to achieve full independence as soon as possible. Although, eventually, St. Martin chose to remain within the Netherlands, with a status that allowed for a greater degree of autonomy, independence never came. In 2006, the people of St. Martin agreed, along with other islands and the government of the Netherlands, to dissolve the Netherlands Antilles. In 2010, independence status was earned within the Kingdom of the Netherlands in the same way Aruba and Curaçao did. And another fact is that a recent problem in St. Martin has been the Vervet monkeys. They are extreme alcohol addicts. They usually love ethanol in fermented fruit, but they also know how they can get their fix from human drinks. The amount of times that tourists have been attacked or mugged by a monkey for their drink has caused laws against the monkeys. So much so that a policy has been put in place that states the government will exterminate the monkeys off the island within the next few years. And despite all that craziness, which you should look into more for yourself, today the economy is based mostly on tourism and slightly on the exportation of sugar. But, you know, with all the monkeying around that's going on, the country brings a lot of tourism in despite that. And now bouncing back into internal Netherlands history, which is late 1600s where it's in its golden era. Christian Huygens was a scientist and astronomer of the golden age who discovered Titan, the first of Saturn's moons. Antontin van Leeuwenhoek invented a microscope that allowed him to observe microbic life forms. He is now colloquially known as the father of microbiology. In the early 1700s, Britain started to become the premier maritime power of the world, and this reduced trade value that the Dutch had. It also weakened the Dutch Empire that had once reached across the globe. The clashes with the British occurred in the 1650s in the First Anglo-Dutch War. The war was a result of the long-standing trade rivalry and disputes between the English and the Dutch. It was also influenced by the English Parliament's desire to curb Dutch economic influence. The war ended with the Treaty of Westminster, which was disadvantageous to the Dutch because it recognized English sovereignty of most of the North Sea, English Channel, and any trade ports on it. The Second Anglo-Dutch War was fought from 1665 to 1667. The war was partly a result of unresolved issues from the First War and resurfacing trade conflicts. 
mainly because the Dutch didn't honor any of the things that happened in the treaty and continued to trade how they wanted. English frustration with the Dutch competition led to renewed hostilities. The raid on Medway, 1667, the Dutch anchored in the Medway River and unleashed a full surprise attack on the English, which is still one of the most humiliating losses to this day because the English heavily outnumbered them at this point. The war ended in 1667 with the Treaty of Breda, which restored most conquered territories, but marked a decline in English naval power and trade restrictions on the Dutch. Within a few years, the Third Anglo-Dutch War would begin in 1672 and would last until 1674. The war was part of a wider conflict in Europe involving France, the Dutch Republic, and a coalition of European states against Louis XIV of France. England initially joined France against the Dutch, and this led to more clashes happening. The Dutch were able to achieve significant victory, mainly under the man named Michel de Routier. He was a Dutch admiral that led the fleet against the British across all parts of the greater conflict. He led the Dutch fleet to victories in the Battle of Plymouth in 1657 and other victories such as the one he commanded back in Medway in 1667 and the Battle of Solobay near the end of the Third War. And the Third War would end with the Treaty of Westminster in 1674. This treaty returned the colonial possessions each side had captured and it was right around this time that something else occurred. So Suriname was British for a time, but then it was Dutch. The Dutch were able to gain strong possession of it and eventually wanted control of that because they believed that Suriname would be this great gold wealth, all these great things, Suriname, Suriname, whatever. And so much so that as part of the peace talks to end the war, the Dutch were willing to trade away New Amsterdam for Suriname. And Suriname was officially recognized as Dutch and New Amsterdam was fully recognized as British, which then became New York which then became one of the most prominent cities in the colonies, which then became the most prominent city in America, and is now one of the most prominent, famous, rich, pop culture-filled cities. The Netherlands tend to make the joke that they are forced to learn English in their country because the, re because the British Empire would go on to extend so far, and English is pretty much the language of business just because so many of the more global north wealthy lucky countries speak it. It's a necessity for trade. But, of course, Dutch is not that language. So the joke is a child will ask their parent, why is it that we have to speak English, but they don't have to learn Dutch in England? And the parent usually replies, it's because one of our ancestors thought it would be a good idea to trade New York for Suriname. And now that we've gotten through the jokes, let's get back to some serious history, which continues with one of history's most famous serious men, Napoleon. He invaded and conquered the Netherlands as part of his invasion of Europe in 1795. The French created the Batavian Republic, and that republic was led by Napoleon's brother. It was then formally annexed into France's greater empire in 1810. This action incorporated the southern and northern Netherlands into one province as part of the French empire. So despite all the years of separation and distance that had been created between these two nations, they were now united once again as one. After Napoleon's defeat, the Congress of Vienna was held to reshape Europe in 1815. The Congress of Vienna merged all Netherlands territories into one country, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. And this meant that Belgians were reunified with the Dutch officially. The Congress of Vienna merged all Netherlands territories into one country, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. This meant Belgians were now reunified with the Dutch legally and were now one country. The leader of the Netherlands was William I. He was also from the House of Orange. The Union was never going to last because the Southern Netherlands was filled with both French speakers and Catholics, and they were now forced under Dutch-speaking Protestant rule, and that's never a good combo. So in 1815, the creation of the Kingdom of the Netherlands is made official, and William I of Orange is made the king. This is the date officially seen as 
Netherlands kind of starting and the Netherlands we know today. But because of the clashes, the South fought a civil war against the North, doesn't that sound familiar, and the South won independence. From 1830 to 1839, permanent change would come to the Lowland region. In 1830, the Kingdom of Belgium was established as an independent nation from the Netherlands. And in 1839, Luxembourg would be established as another independent nation despite its teeny tiny size. The late 1800s were filled with rapid industrialization by the Netherlands, and the country became very rich due to resources harvested from Dutch Indonesia. Coal and oil were harvested heavily out of Indonesia, and Dutch trade was prominent once again. In the early 1900s, World War I began. The Netherlands declared themselves neutral throughout World War I and tried very hard not to trade with opposing powers because they feared getting invaded like another neutral country, Belgium, which was right below them. After the war, the country faced Great Depression issues just like everyone else did. Unemployment skyrocketed. The currency was completely unstable. And everything about the country was going in a really bad way. But things started to turn around right around World War II. The Netherlands initially declared neutrality, but this did not stop Nazi Germany from using the Blitzkrieg tactics to invade and conquer the country in just a week. The Nazis bombed Rotterdam into rubble and attempted to exterminate the Jewish population both in this city and the greater nation. The most famous of these people was in Holland. That was Anne Frank. She was no older than 16 when the Nazis found her and her family hiding away in Amsterdam. Her diaries revealed the fear and horror of the Nazi final solution. In the Netherlands, they killed around 140,000 Jews, which was 90% of the Jewish population. Also in the war, the Dutch East Indies were conquered in 1942 by Imperial Japan. Imperial Japanese rule was brutal. People were abused left and right, executed, there was no rights. Women were used for sexual pleasure without their consent. Everything top to bottom was disgusting. Imperial Japan is one of the worst occupiers in history. And this is always the lens I look through is the closer we are to where I am alive today and where we are all alive today means whatever action you did is worse because we've all morally stepped forward because in the 500 BC, you know, Rome was killing each other. It's tough, but it's just history. Like people didn't have as much knowledge as we do now as to why to treat people equally. When you're doing these disgusting acts like the Holocaust and the Hall of the Moor, which was still in the Soviet Union and the awful rule of Imperial Japan. It just makes it so much worse that this was 80 years ago and people who experienced it are still alive today or would have been alive today had they not been murdered. So it's just, it's brutal. But bouncing back into the Netherlands, the Nazis starved the Dutch people and on top of the Jews they killed, at least 18,000 people died from the famine. Operation Market Garden was a battle plan enacted on the Netherlands-Germany border. It involved thousands of paratroopers. It was a massive success for the Allies in pushing back the Nazi forces and is the most successful paratrooper mission in history. After years of fighting, the nation was liberated in 1945, mainly by Canadian forces that were backed by other Allied powers. And this marked the end of World War II for the Netherlands. William Dress was the Prime Minister at the end of World War II. He led a government that helped the Netherlands recover and reindustrialize. He also advocated for the decolonization of the world, and of course, this included all Dutch possessions. Well, that was what was advocated for, but as we know, not all of them went away. Dress was a founding member of NATO and the EU, which is why the Netherlands became one of the famous six. The six refers to the first six European nations that were at the forefront of the creation of all European organizations in the world after World War II, in the post-war period after World War II. Oil was discovered in large amounts in 1943. Netherlands would merge the existing Dutch petroleum company with the trading and transport company to form Shell. By the 1960s, Shell had outcompeted the American Standard Oil Company as the largest oil company in the world. 
Today, it is one of the largest conglomerates in the entire world, and it's pretty evil as well. There are extreme cases of greed where people are employed for far below living wages and ways that can be compared to sharecropping or indentured servitude in some countries in order to fuel the shell machine, and it's pretty nasty. It's something you should look into more because there's a lot that goes into that company being so rich. But bouncing back to other post-war things in the Netherlands, the Netherlands expanded its democracy and focused on the economy in the post-war period. The nation survived the European inflation of the 50s and remained relatively stable as it was rebuilt. The Netherlands had a system where the government and labor force both agreed to keep prices down so that inflation would not occur. The province of Zeeland was reshaped after the war because floods were very prominent. Zeeland was reshaped after the war. This was because floods were prominent and many new artificial islands were created. These new islands were created as a new province in the Netherlands. The 60s were an economic downturn as different markets fell apart in this decade and the Dutch tried to expand industrialization, but it was hard with all the economic instability. In the 70s and 80s, the Dutch started to let go of political power in their empire. Indonesia, Suriname, and more gained full independence throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The Labour Party, the Catholic Party, and the Dutch Christian political parties were all the ones that dominated the elections throughout the 80s and 90s. Protests gripped the nation in the late 1980s when unsanctioned royal marriages occurred. Environmentalist groups also joined into the political system as well and started to take up a large amount of the National Assembly. The 90s were defined by political liberalization and the expansion of rights. Prostitution and marijuana use were legalized in some form nationwide. Netherlands became the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage all the way back in 2001. This openness extended to immigration, but that was challenged by anti-immigration candidate Pim Fortune. He was a political commentator that rose to prominence for his speeches that were very far right and challenged the government of the Netherlands. He became a political candidate in the early 2000s, but he was assassinated in 2002, just before the election cycle began. His supporters made their way into government in order to avenge him and kind of act as the people who are using him as a martyr to achieve a cause. But his supporters lost steam in just a few years. Theo van Gogh was a filmmaker that created a documentary with the claim that the Quran encouraged violence against women. The film aired in 2004, and van Gogh was murdered just a few months later when he was biking in Amsterdam. Both of these assassinations were the first to occur in the Netherlands in a very long time. Because it had been decades since there was any actual political violence within the country, it was much more safe protests and way before that war. So this was a new thing for them. Immigration remained a prominent issue in the country, where clashes occurred between Christians and Muslims. The Netherlands implemented a policy that required immigrants to pass a test on Dutch culture and customs inside their home country before they were able to migrate into the Netherlands. Geert Walters is a far-right member of the Party of Freedom that is the face of anti-immigration. Since 2010, this party has been the second or third largest in the country. Mark Rutte became Dutch Prime Minister back in 2010. He was part of the VVD party. He was very far right in his early policies as Prime Minister, but enough leftist doctrines have made the country much more centered. In 2021, his coalition faced large protests against the curfews that were in place because of COVID. The protests saw hundreds of people from different political parties riot in the streets. Nearly 600 arrests were made and dozens of people were injured. The riots didn't get the government to budge, but tensions rose between many political parties. Different coalitions have resigned since these protests and have challenged the stability of the country. Mark Rutte is still prime minister and has been since his original election in 2010. Because of this, he is the longest serving prime minister in Dutch history. And that gets us to the present where we're going to talk about both present setting and some cultural stuff. After all the 2021 protests, there was great mistrust in the government. And since then, it has been higher than ever. People do not believe what the government is putting out, and 
despite the system itself being very competitive and from an international scale, all things seem fine in the election process and political process of the Netherlands, things are still very shaky. Issues of immigration and the treatment of other cultures, like Muslims, still plague the country to this day. Despite these issues, the Netherlands is one of the richest, happiest, successfully democratic, and stable countries in the world. This nation has become famous for its beautiful agricultural and for its famous cultural practices. And I'm going to talk about some of those now. The Netherlands is known for its extensive network of cycling paths, and cycling is a way of life for many Dutch people. Bicycles are a common mode of transport for commuting to and from work, and there is a strong cycling culture with dedicated bike-friendly lanes in pretty much every city, and, and it's at the point now where more people own bikes than they do cars because of the way the cities are set up. And some other big traditions and holidays are ones like Sinterklaas. It is a traditional Dutch holiday, which is celebrated on December 5th. It involves the arrival of St. Nick, Sinterklaas, by steamboat. Gift-giving and the controversial figure of Zwarte Piet all arrive at the same time. Zwarte Piet is known as Black Pete. The character is meant to reward good kids with presents and punish the bad ones. But the celebration of this character is very controversial because the main way that Black Pete has been reenacted is by very, very white Dutch people using blackface to portray him. Many people have called for the end of this and, of course, the end of blackface in general. And this character is kind of the forefront of challenging blackface in its usage because of the way it depicts dark skin tone as cartoony, not real, belittling, objectifying, all sorts of things like that. It's pretty gross that it happens, but it's been a long time practice. So the pushback has been very hard on both sides, but people seem to be understanding that, you know, maybe a little tweak to the beloved character won't hurt anyone who cares and anybody who does cares. It'll be a good step in the right direction. This holiday, though, is very deeply in Dutch culture. This holiday, though, is very deeply rooted in Dutch culture and is celebrated with parades, sweets, and a whole lot of special traditions. The Netherlands is also famous for its tulip culture. Tulips are not just a symbol of wealth and nature, but they're just a huge part of the culture itself. The Kuchenhof Gardens showcase thousands of tulip varieties at all times and thousands of tulip varieties in the spring and because of this lots of tourism comes in just to see that of course tulips have been a huge talk since at least the 1600s so it's very cool that it's still a big thing cheese making has a long tradition in the netherlands and cheese markets such as the one in alkmaar are popular are popular attractions for both tourists and locals visitors can witness the traditional cheese weighing process and enjoy various cheese varieties the most famous being gouda or gouda as they say Netherlands is one of the best places in the entire world to live due to the rights, wealth, and culture, all of which are unlikely to change anytime soon. And the last thing I want to talk about is the celebration of King's Day, which happens on April 27th of each year. It is a national holiday to honor the Dutch monarch. It is marked by festivities, which include street parties, music, and people wearing orange clothing to honor the Dutch royal family, the House of Orange. So with all that being said, that gets us to the very end, where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset to kind of wrap up the history and see what we can pull from it. And with the Netherlands, that lesson takeaway is going to be, you can't always get what you want, but it doesn't mean it's the end. This is very simple with the Netherlands because this country has seen anything that all the massive world power countries have seen at some point. They saw global success in taking over different parts of trade, controlling the trade of enslaved people, controlling different resources, all that. Then they've seen wars beat them down, They've been beaten down by horrible ethnic cleansing and genocides, things of that sort. They've seen the ups and downs and all arounds, and no matter what it's been, the Dutch have either wanted power, or they've wanted control, or they've wanted a whole lot of money, 
And sometimes that hasn't been what's happened. But despite that, as time went on and a lot of adjustments were made and failures were made and the country went through all the horrible things it did and it did all the horrible things it did, the up and downs evened out. And now the Dutch live in a great country that is one of the most stable, rich, and democratic in the world. And I say you could do the same with your life and anything around it because there are going to be times where you hardcore don't get what you want. It can be the girl you want with all your heart doesn't want you back. Dream job, dream school, body you want from the gym, PR, anything, any of those things, any more, any less. Those all could be that thing where you've just strived hard, you've wanted something so bad, you've put work in, and it just doesn't happen. But at the end of the day, as long as you are continuing to put work in different areas of your life and just trying in general, it means it's not the end. And it means that eventually things can, and in my belief, will even out. As long as you're pushing hard, you're trying, you're trying to figure out what's going on, you can get it done. You can not only get it done, but you can succeed very heavily. You can achieve all you want to achieve. And even if it's in a different light than what you thought. The Dutch definitely didn't think in the peak of their empire or the lows of World War II that they would be this stable center of Europe democracy country that was doing super well with wealth and all those things. But yet, here they are because they kept pushing on and kept accepting the fact that they didn't get what they wanted, but they still just had to push forward and see what else they could get. And I say do the same with you. No matter what's going on, no matter how bad things get, no matter how much you want something with all your heart, relationship, anything, it just doesn't work. Just keep trying because something will give you that fulfillment, that happiness at some point in your life. And that's going to be the absolute end for me. So the Netherlands, as you can see, was a very deep one, a lot of layers, a lot of things to sort through, but I really did enjoy it. And I hope you guys did too. So I'm not going to take any more of your time. And I'm just going to say... My name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History. And that was the Netherlands. You guys enjoy and have a great day.